Well, it's been a few years ago, uh, but my wife and I went to Walmart together, and uh, we were going around getting groceries and all the stuff that we need to get. My wife told me, she said, I'm going to go to the fabric section. I got to go uh, pick up some fabrics. Uh, uh, and, I, and I said, okay, well, I'm going to go to the hardware section. She said, well, why are you going to go to the hardware section? I'm going to look at tools. I'm not looking at fabrics. You let me know when you're done. You call me, and I'll come back over, and we'll, we'll keep shopping, right? So I go to the hardware section. I don't have any business being over there. I don't know what to do with any of that stuff. But I'm over there, I'm, you know, doing my macho thing, walking and looking at that. That's a good tool right there. I have no idea what it is, but it looks pretty cool to me. And as I'm walking down through there, I see this guy. He's at the end of the aisle, and he's got sort of that million-mile stare going on. You know, he's sort of just staring off into the middle distance, looks sort of like he's lost. And I don't know, are you like me? Like, when I see somebody like that, my attention's drawn to him. You know, I'm thinking, what are they thinking? Obviously, they're thinking something, you know? And so he's standing there. He's kind of looking off into the space. And, and I guess I was staring because a minute later, the guy just sort of comes to, and, and, and he recognizes that I'm, I'm there. And he goes, and, and, and before I say that, you should know, the guy is standing there with a big bucket of paint in one hand, and he's got one of those giant crowbars in the other. And he looks at me, and he says, you know, I'm just trying to decide whether to fix it up or tear it down. <laughs> and man, I identified. And I think any homeowner in this room, you can identify too. Because you know how it is. You've got that shed out back of your house. It's in the back corner of your yard, you know. And, and, and whenever it was built, whether it was you or the previous homeowners, they built it, it, was, it, it looked like a great idea. I mean, it was functional, it served a purpose, you put the lawnmower and the yard stuff and whatever else stuff in your house that you need to store that you never, you know, are going to ever look at again, you put it in a Rubbermaid tub, you put it out there and you forget that it exists. It has a purpose and it looks nice and you're glad it's on your property, but then some years pass, you know, starts to fall out of repair, you know, starts sagging a little bit in places, falling apart, some stuff's coming off of it, the paint's peeling off, and, and you know, you're, you're, you've become a wasp keeper. Not a beekeeper, you're a wasp keeper, because there's like nine or ten wasp nests out there. You don't even want to go back there. You don't want to be, you don't store your lawnmower back there anymore, because you don't want to have to go in there to get your lawnmower, right? And so every time you go to your backyard, you're faced with this. At one point, it was something that added to your life, but now what it is, is a mess, and you've got to decide at some point what to do with the mess. And like our buddy at Walmart, you've got to decide what are you going to do? Are you going to fix it up or are you going to tear it down? When we open the book of Ruth, right from the beginning, from the beginning of the narrative, what you see is a mess. You see, God's people at this time. If you want to know where, what time Ruth was written, we believe it was written at the time of the Judges. And Judges was a really messed up time uh, for, for people in Israel. There, there wasn't a king. People did whatever they thought was right. And there was a series of, of leaders that God would raise up. But the reason that God had to raise those leaders up is because God's people kept falling into captivity because they kept not doing what God told them to do. And there was a lot of just back and forth. And, and it was stressful and it was tense and it was a problem. And living there at the time, anybody who would look at the situation in Israel would say, we are in a mess. So we open the beginning of the book, and here we have this guy named Elimelech, right? Elimelech and his wife, Naomi. And Elimelech, his name means my God is king, right? Um, he's got this really sweet wife, you know, and they're living in, in Israel, but they look at the mess and they go, well, we got to do something about this. What are we going to do? Are we going to fix it up? Are we going to tear it down? And 
I believe starting out, they had hope. Remember, well, that's the name of our series, right? Hope. I think, I think most people, by the way, who end up being hopeless start out with hope, but they don't know what to do with it. I don't know if you can relate to this, but when I see what Elimelech did, so we talked about this a couple weeks ago, so I won't go into a lot of detail, but what Elimelech does is he decides we're just going to move. We're going to get out of here. We're going to leave the mess. By the way, how, don't raise your hand, but how many of us have found ourselves in a bigger challenge because we thought the best way to get away from what we were dealing with is to walk away from the challenge that we were in. We walked away from a challenge that we thought was insurmountable and ended up in even a bigger challenge, the proverbial out of the frying pan and into the fire. Elimelech said, we're going to walk away from this. We're going to start new. But where he wanted to start new was in the bad place. He wanted to take his family to a place called Moab. Oh, if you've been with us, uh, in this series, you know that Moab was a, was a really bad place and some really sadistic, terrible worship practices. And people just didn't have any, not only were they, were they did, not serving the true God, it just seemed like they didn't have any moral compass. There was no, there was no conscience. The, the, the things that they did, if you read about them, I mean, they're just, they're, they, they almost make your skin crawl. But Elimelech said, look, things are better over there than they are over here. So we're going to fix this by doing that. Now, the reason that I'm going here is because the one thing that all of us have in common, all of us walking into this room today have this in common. There is at least one mess in our life, right? And this is part of what you carry with you every day. You carry it with you to work. You carry it with you in your relationships. It's part of the burden. All of us uh, have, have some burdens in life, and it's part of the burden that you carry. Maybe the mess is a relationship mess. Maybe there's somebody in your life where there's this relational problem, and you just can't seem to get past it, and it's a mess, and you don't know what to do with it, or maybe you have a financial mess, and every time you look at the student debt and the credit card debt and all the stuff that's piled up, you feel like this is a mess I've got to deal with. I've got to figure out what to do with it. Um, or you know, maybe it's an occupational mess. You've got problems at work, and you think, I'm never going to be able to get past this. Well, one of the things that people do to try to deal with that is they try to fix it themselves. Elimelech tried to fix it. He said, I, you know, I'm just going to get in there and I'm going I'm to fix this problem. And his, you know, might as well have changed his name at this point from my God is king to my plan is better, right? So he's going to do his own thing. But I've learned something. I, you know, you're welcome to ask my wife, call Wendy up and say, um, you know, how do you feel about Jonathan's handyman skills? And you'll get an interesting answer because I... I tend to believe that I can do anything. Like ultimately, I feel like if I get on YouTube, I can figure out how to repair anything, electrical, plumbing, uh, structurally in my house. I feel like I could really add like another floor. I could add like a second, you know, like in a mezzanine porch. And other, I got all kinds of plans. Wendy can tell you I can envision a lot of things for, for the property that we live on, and I believe I can do them all, and Wendy has the right point of view, and that is that I can't. And here's the point, and, and, and here's why. Because... If you try to fix something, but you don't even understand what's wrong, you will always make it worse. If you try to fix a problem that you don't understand, you will always make it worse. Elimelech thought he had enough knowledge and information to know what the right thing to do was, but what he ended up doing, instead of pursuing God and saying, God, what do you want us to do? How do you want us to handle this? He made up his own mind. Here's the deal. God certainly did not lead Elimelech to Moab. But anyhow, 
There he is, him and Naomi, two boys. They move into Moab, not planning to stay. He says they're only going to go there for a while, right? But just so you know, um, the, the nature of sin is that when we flirt with it, it latches itself onto us, and then what we thought we could control begins to control us. He thought he was just going to spend some time in Moab. A lot, a lot of us thought we were just going to spend some time with something that we knew really wasn't God's plan for us. We thought we were just going to hang out with something that we knew wasn't best. But before we knew it, something that we thought we had control over got control over us. And before long, they, they had a, a permanent place to live in Moab. They had an address. They sent out the change of address forms. They let everybody know, here, we're living in Moab. And it was, it was, it was Elimelech and Naomi and their two boys. And now they're kind of set in Moab. Now, two sons are named Malon and Killian. Those names mean sickly and fading fast, right? So introductions around the neighborhood were probably pretty interesting. Hi, my name is Limelech. My name is my goddess king. This is my wife, Naomi, and these are my two boys, sickly and fading fast, you know? But they get there, and Elimelech gets sick, of all things, and, and, and he dies. Now you got Naomi and the two boys, and as they grow up, they start dating the date girls in Moab, and they end up married to these two Moabite girls, Ruth and Orpah, and... Some time passes. Notice that Naomi does not decide to go home yet. She's just, she's just staying. She's hanging out with the boys and with their two wives. All of a sudden, the boys die. Now it's her and Ruth and Orpah. And at this point, she does the other thing that people tend to do when they're facing a mess. She gives up. See, Naomi... I think during those years that she was living in Moab, I think her brand of hope is a brand that so many of us have and we don't even realize that we're doing this. It's not even on our radar screen that this is how we approach the world. But our brand of hope is that we sit back and wait for our circumstances to change. And we think that that's hope. Well, at some point, things are going to get better. And we think that somehow that really is the kind of hope that God wants us to have. I truly believe the reason that Naomi didn't go home after Elimelech died, at this point, she's the leader of the family. When Elimelech is gone, she's the leader of the family. She decides not to go home. She camps out there in Moab for years. And I think the reason was she was just thinking at some point, things are going to change. But I think when the boys died, they had the funerals. And she sat around, she looked at the situation and she said, well, you know, it's just been mess after mess after mess after mess, and it's just now, it's so big that there is, no, there is no dealing with it. It's time to tear it down. Remember our guy said, I don't know whether to fix it up or tear it down. She says, it's just time to tear it down. By the way, hope is a motivator. And this is important, because hope isn't just something that you should have because that'll help your outlook be better. People will like you better because you'll be in a good mood because you have hope. No, 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 no. Hope is what determines what the outcome will be because hope is a motivator. Hope motivates you to take what you have and do something with it. Hopelessness motivates you to take what is there and dismantle it because you don't think there's any potential there. You can take a person who has hope and a person who has no hope. The one thing they'll agree on is today's mess. You don't have a problem getting them to agree on today's trouble. What they disagree on is tomorrow's potential. 
And because a person with hope says, I want to work on this, I want to do something with this, they, they do, they, shoulder, they, they, they put their shoulder to it and they go to work and it affects their outcome. But Naomi's not ready to do that anymore. She's ready to give up. She says, I don't even want to go by the name of Naomi anymore. I want to go by the name of Mara because I'm a bitter person. And by the way, if you're a person who's hoped for a long time that the circumstances were going to change and they haven't and the mess has gotten worse, bitterness is the next stop on the train. But there is a change agent in the house, as we talked about last week. Because somehow, God allowed an incredible woman named Ruth to be one of the gals that married one of her sons. And as she starts to go home, and see, this is the thing. Naomi is finally headed back to Judah, and she's got these two Moabite girls in tow. She makes it down the road, and she thinks to herself, this is ridiculous. This is a mess. Now keep in mind, when you're in the middle of a mess and you decide that you don't have hope anymore, you start tearing things apart. Don't be surprised when relationships get torn apart too. She says, you know what? I know we've been together for a long time and I know we've had this family and I, I want to believe it was a close family because both, neither of the girls wanted to go. I think they had a good family dynamic. I think they had something going on. But Ruth said, you know what? It's time for this relationship to be torn apart. It's time for this to be done. There's no hope here. You girls need to go back to your families. So Orpah, after crying and, and really, I believe, sincerely wanting to go with Ruth, makes a hard call and decides to go home. And then, as we talked about in the previous weeks, Naomi looks at Ruth and says, listen, your sister-in-law has gone back to her family and to her gods. And you should do the same. You, do you hear the destructiveness in this? I don't think Naomi wanted to be a destructive person. I don't think anybody in this room has any desire to be a destructive person. But you know what? When we get hopeless, that's just what we toggle into. We toggle into destructiveness. We, we, tear, apart, we, 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 we tear apart relationships. We tear apart futures. And we, we walk away from, from potential. But that's what, it's not a personal thing. It's not that that's what we want. It's just that that's what hopelessness does to us. But see, the cool thing, though, is Ruth has hope even if her mother-in-law doesn't. She sees potential. And you know why? Because she, think about this, Ruth grew up in a, in a place and in a culture where God was not a father. God was not somebody who wanted what was best for you. The things that they believe God expected them to do to win favor were terrible things that had terrible consequences. And, and the idea of God loving her had been off the table until she grew up and she met a man and she moved to Ruth's, uh, she moved to Naomi's house and she learned about a God who loved her and she learned about a God who wanted the best for her and she learned about a God who the things that, that God asked us to do are good things that have good consequences in our life and she learned about a God that said I want to provide for you and, and, and I want to protect you and I want to be there for you and not, Naomi had had enough God in her life to be inoculated like some of us we've been to enough church services and enough Sunday school and enough things to, to give us a passing familiar familiarity with God, but we don't get the full impact of it the way somebody like a Ruth does because she'd experienced the other side of the world. And let me tell you something, when you introduce a person who's never had a, had a, had a introduction to a God that loves them like that, and you introduce them to that, they're going to have hope because they understand how huge it is to have a God who loves them more than anything in the world. And that's what I believe gave Ruth hope. There's a 
There's a verse in Psalms I'd like to read to you. This is in Psalms 33, verse 20. And the psalmist says, we put our hope in the Lord. That's what Ruth did. That's what makes her a change agent. That's what makes her different than anything else that, uh, that was around her at the time. He is our help and our shield. Now, the word help there means a teammate. It means somebody who fights alongside you. And then the word shield there is just what it sounds like. It's a handheld protection device that, that, that fighting men would take into battle with them. And it was the only thing that stood between them and what was attacking them. And so what the, what the psalmist says is, I'm putting my hope in God because God is going to be the one who's fighting alongside me and helping me move the ball down the field. And then when, when Satan tries to attack me and when he tries to cause difficulty, difficulty in my life and when he brings me challenges, I know that God is going to have my back. God is going to be the thing that stands between me and what's trying to take me out and I'll live to fight another day. That's hope. And that's what Ruth had. Look at this. This is an, and by the way, there are several verses in Psalms that are written almost like this. Let me show you one that's a little bit of a tweak of that verse. Psalm 84, 11. For the Lord God is our sun and shield. Again, that's protection and uh, or provision and protection. He gives us, now this is key, he gives us grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold, uh, the Lord will withhold no good thing from those who do what is right. So for those who are willing to make God their boss, see Psalm 84 is all about making God your boss and how awesome it is to have God for a boss. That's why we use the term Lord. Lord means boss. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, by the way, when, when people pray and they say, dear Lord, thank you so much for everything that you've done in my life, what you're saying is boss, Thank you for everything you've done in my life. And that's cool, so long as you mean it, right? If you're willing to call God the boss, God's got to be able to call the shots. Ruth is cool with that. And and Psalms is saying, if God is calling the shots, if God is the boss, he gives us two things. He gives us grace and glory. What does that mean? Grace means favor. It means uh, means an undeserved gift. It means a raise, a raise that you did not earn. So the Bible's saying, if God is your boss, and if you're following him, he's a boss who loves to give out raises. And then, and then glory, uh, 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 is, it means respect, it means, it means position, it means to be lifted up, it means to be elevated, it means to be promoted. So the Bible's saying if God is your boss, he loves to give raises and he loves to give promotions. And so Ruth knows this. She can look at the mess that she's in, and that's tough, but she also knows that she serves a God who loves to give raises and promotions so she can see potential even in the middle of a difficult situation. So that's what we're, we're talking about. And we get to the point that we left off last week. Remember Ruth uh, and Naomi, they're in Judah there. Now, now, here's what's happening. Hopefully I have time enough to explain this. We're gonna get more into this in the next couple of weeks. When Naomi gets back to Judah, what she does is she, she, Elimelech still has some properties there and she puts them on the market. Now, here's what happens. If a family member, a close family member, decides to buy the properties of Elimelech, then what will happen is she will get the money for selling the property, but she will also get most of the produce that comes off of that property. It was part of the, the, the law that God had set up, and it was a way of making sure that there was provision for a family when the provider had passed away. And so um, she moves to Judah, planning to sell the properties, and she goes and she sits down in her living room, and she waits for the phone to ring. Now, the thing about a, a, a person with hope like Ruth, they don't sit well in the middle of a crisis, right? They're, you got something big going on and, 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 you, and you, sitting and waiting 
It's really tough. Ruth's sitting there, she's tapping her foot, waiting. She's like, well, we gotta do something, we gotta do something. I can't just sit here because this is driving me crazy. So she says, hey, Naomi, I heard that your people have this thing, right? A, A law from God that when harvesters are harvesting a field, well, they have to leave the corners alone so that for people like us, uh, uh, we can go and, and, and harvest some of the grain in the corners and, and we'll have enough uh, food to eat. So I'd like to go and, and harvest some grain. And Naomi says, fine, go ahead. You know, that's, that sounds great. And this is where we pick up, right, Ruth uh, 2. And I'll just kind of read you that exchange. So the Bible says, One day Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, All right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. And while she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. Lord be with you, he said, and the Lord bless you. The harvester said back to him. So, in terms of what it feels like to be in a mess, I want you to think about Ruth's life. She married a guy that she expected to spend the rest of her life with, and he died. She followed her mother-in-law to a place she's never lived before with people that she doesn't know. And who, by the way, imagine the, the worst racial tension that you can think of going back in your mind to, to history in our country. Double that. And that's what you've got going on between uh, uh, the, the feelings toward Moabites in Israel were not good. Not good at all. So here she is. She's in a, she's, she's in a place where, where people think she's not worth anything. She, she doesn't have any intrinsic worth. And she's, trying to, she's just trying to survive. She's picking up some great... And she's... She, you know, her life looks so different. Some of you in this room have been through a divorce. Everything fell apart. And one morning you woke up in a house that you weren't used to, in a bed where nobody was next to you, trying to go about the day-to-day business of your life, but feeling like something has completely broken on the inside and feeling the foreignness of life not being anything like what it once was. You've got Ruth getting up early in the morning and putting on a pair of old jeans or oldest pair of jeans and a, and a, and a, and a, and a worn t-shirt and some, some leather work gloves that her husband left behind when he died and, 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 a, and a pair of boots. And she, she walks to this field trying to kind of lay low, make sure she doesn't get in anybody's eyeline. And she's, she's gathering grain, but, but by hand, I mean, the harvesters have got all these great tools and all she's got is, is a, a work ethic and the willingness to do whatever it takes to keep moving. And here she is, she's in this field, she's, she's worked most of the day, she's sweaty, she doesn't feel good, everything has been really tough, and she's trying to figure out how she's going to adjust to this new life. She has, you know, her hair is all not done, and all of a sudden in rides Prince Charming. Here comes Boaz. You say, there is no way. If you didn't know the end of this story, You'd say, there is no way. There is a future. There is an incredible guy there. Potential for a future. But there is no way you can take a Moabite girl who's lost it all, who's sweaty, and her hair is all not done, and she doesn't, you know, she's just trying to stay out of everybody's way, and somehow match these two people together and put together a future. There's no way. Unless God is going to do something. 
Romans 8, 28 is a favorite verse for many of us. It says, and we know that God causes everything that happens on the face of the earth. Right? It's not the way I read it. You know, I've talked to a lot of people who have somehow, somebody's told them, in their, in their fellowship of Jesus, somewhere along the road, somebody told them that everything that happens in life is something that God wills to happen. So if you've got cancer, somehow God willed it. If, if somebody that you love died, somehow God willed it. And if, if, if you know, if something terrible has happened to you, that was God's will too. But you shouldn't feel bad about it because God is going to do something good with it. That is not at all what that verse says, not even close. Listen, we live in a broken world and Satan is doing everything that he can to mess up this world that we live in. That is not God's fault. God is not evil. He's not responsible for evil. If you have cancer, God did not give you cancer. Romans eight twenty eight says, in all the things that happen to you, the good things, the bad things, the terrible things, the trauma, the, the, the pain, God is a big enough God to take the pieces of, to take the broken pieces and put them into a mosaic that forms a beautiful picture of a future. See, he, he's, God is capable of taking the terrible things that happen to us and somehow forging an incredible destiny out of them. And that's what Ruth understood. See, I have this problem as a Christian. I have a lot of problems as a Christian, but confession's good for the soul. I might as well tell you about this one. Um, patience is not my strong point, um, not even close. And uh, so I always want to, and I have a, I'm a very driven person. I have a lot of goals. My wife will tell you I'm a dreamer. That's the word she uses. Because, and that not as a, she doesn't use that as a pejorative. She's just saying that's my personality. I see, I see huge things and I want to, I want to do them. Um, but my problem is I always want to be able to draw a straight line from where I am to the destiny that I believe is right for me. The problem with that is that I cannot get myself from where I am to my destiny. And more than that, I have no idea what my ultimate destiny should be. I can make guesses out of it, but only God knows. Here's the thing. It does not matter whether I can draw a straight line from where I am to where I need to be. It only matters if God can draw a straight line from where I am to where I need to be. You know what I mean? Because it was no accident that Ruth was working on Boaz's fields the day that Boaz showed up and was talking to the harvesters. It was no accident that Joseph was forgotten in prison and just happened to be there on a night when the king had a dream that he couldn't interpret. It was no accident that David's dad sent him on an on a errand boy mission to go deliver some sandwiches to his brothers on a day that Goliath was in the field and taunting God's armies. I'm just saying, if God can draw a straight line from the mess you're in to the place you need to be, then you're doing all right. And that's why Ruth had hope. If hope is just a feeling that circumstances will change, it very, very likely will disappoint you. But my question is this, what if God is saying to you, your circumstances are the launching pad, are the training ground, are, are, are the starting gate for the destiny that I've planned for you all along? It's at this point in the book of Ruth that we turn a corner. The first half of Ruth, the first couple chapters, uh, is about a mess. The second couple chapters is about a miracle. And at this point, it's about a setup. Any of y'all ever been on blind dates? I, I went on a couple blind dates in college, which was a couple too many. I learned to avoid like the plague, the whole, you know, you really ought to meet so-and-so, right? That's when I would hit the back door. 
But this is a little different because this is a blind date that God set up. And if God sets you up on a blind date, you probably ought to go. Um, Because God really understands how this works. If God engineered romantic relationships, he understands how it works. And so he's setting up this blind date between uh, Ruth and Boaz. And I just have to believe that tucked into this narrative, as God meets a woman with tremendous hope and sets her up with an incredible future, I think we ought to look at the person that God set her up with. Maybe we could learn something here. Maybe if we take a look at Boaz, we could learn a few things. Because some of y'all in this room, you're, you're in the dating scene right now. I mean, you're looking for your, your future spouse. And you know, it's tough. You know, you, you, you start dating and all of a sudden you get kind of goo-goo over the person. You lose all objectivity, you know. I mean, we've all been there. Or, you know, maybe you're like me and you're married, but you want to make sure that you're the right kind of person. You want to make sure that you're providing for your spouse the kind of person that you should be. And I believe that in the next few moments, we're going to learn something about God's design for romantic relationships. And more than that, I think we're going to learn something about true manliness. Now, here's the deal. We live in a world where God's plan has been largely marginalized. So you don't hear a lot of talk about what it means to be a real man, what true, authentic manhood means. But I'm going to talk about it because if our generation doesn't get this straight, we are going to really lose. Listen, we need a generation of men of honor, guys who will live up to the calling and the potential and the plan that God has laid before them, and guys that will stand up and do the right thing. And I just want to say, let's take a look at somebody that God said, this guy has got enough going on that I'm going to set somebody like Ruth up with him. Listen, I still think that the lucky one here is Boaz. Because God is going to put Boaz with somebody that is just incredible. So guys, if that's what you want, God's going to tell us what we have to be. And ladies, if you're wondering whether the guy that you're dating uh, should make the cut, I'm going to give you three questions. We're going to, we're going to get it settled. Before you leave today, you should know whether the guy's marriage material or not. And, and husbands in this room, all antenna up, because this is going to be um, a, a little bit of a course for us about making sure that we're calibrated the way we should be as husbands. Okay, here we go. Three questions. And if you're dating... It's pencil and paper time, right? By the way, I told the, I told the four o'clock service last night, I'm the dad of daughters. And uh, so this is great for me because they've got this on video. And <laughs> so someday when I tell one of my daughters, you know, I'm, I'm just really not sure that I tremendously approve of this guy. And she's going to say, you just don't like him. You just have a personal thing against him. I'm going to say, no, I'm going to play this video from 2016. I'd never met the guy. I'm going to prove to you that I already felt this way, right? (laughs) Anyhow, (laughs) question number one, does he have his life in gear? Does he have his life in gear? Listen, the difference between leaders and losers is the ability to take what they've been given and do something with it. See, God invests in us. He gives us talents and skills and abilities, and he expects us to do something with them. You remember the story of the talents in, in, in Matthew and in Luke? And here you got this, and it's a little different in each account, but um, you've got this, this wealthy master who calls in his servants, and he says, I'm going to be gone on a trip for a while. He says, I want you to, to manage some of my affairs. And he, he says, he, he takes his A team dude, his number one guy, and he gives him five sacks of silver, and he says, listen, I want you to manage this while I'm gone, and he has this other guy, he's promising, but he's not quite yet at the level of his top guy, but he's going he's gonna to invest in him too. Right, here's two bags of silver, buddy. Go manage this, and, and, and I'll call you to count when I come back, and then he takes a guy that he's not sure is going to make it with the company. 
This guy's kind of on the fence. And he says, well, I'm still going to invest in this guy because he might be able to do something with it. So he, takes, he gives him one bag of silver and says, here you go. Go manage this. So he goes on his trip and he comes back. Remember what happened? Calls the guys in. Guy with five bags of silver says, I went and I invested it. It was definitely a good investment year. I, I got you 100% return. I got, I got five more bags of, of silver. And then the, the guy with two bags said, same with me. It was a great year. I put, the money, I put the money to work. I invested it. I worked hard. I made sure that those investments were going to pay off. And, and you know, so I got two more bags for you. I doubled your investment. And in both cases, the master says the same thing. It's like a formula response. He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now check this out. You have been faithful in handling the small amount. So he's saying, what I have invested in you, you have done something with. And then he says, now I will give you more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Now, this is a, this is a principle of the universe. Success leads to more success, right? If, if you do well with what you're given, you will get more to do well with. But we got this guy with the one bag of silver. And he's just, he doesn't have anything going on, Right? And, and he doesn't do anything with it. All his master's gone. He, 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 he hides it, you know. And then when the, when the master comes back and calls him to account, he brings it in there and he says, here's your bag of silver back. He said, I didn't do anything with it. And then he does what people who are, he does what losers do. Losers will not produce anything and they will always find someone or something else to blame for the reason that they didn't produce anything. He comes in and says, look, you know, you're really a tough boss. And I was scared of you. And so I figured if I invested it and something went wrong, well, I figured you'd drop the hammer on me. So here's the deal. I just made sure you didn't lose anything. And I brought it back to you. Let me tell you what really happened. The guy goofed off the whole time his master was away. I mean, the whole time his master was away and the other two guys are out there working hard, managing investments. He's sitting in his mama's basement, chewing on potato chips and playing video games and calling up his friends and hanging out and doing nothing. And when his master gets back and says, what did you do? He said, well, it was your fault. It's your fault. If you, were, if you were a nicer guy, I would have I, I done something with that. That's a loser. You see, leaders take what they've got and they see an opportunity. Losers, they just squander it. They, they let it go. So if you're dating somebody, you got to ask yourself the question, does he have something going on? When the Bible says, in, in, in Ruth 2, 1, it says that Boaz was a wealthy and influential man. The, the Hebrew words that we get that from are hard to translate. It could mean mighty man of valor. It could mean manly man. It could mean wealthy and respected. It could mean a man of great courage. Most translators believe it means everything I just said. So he had it going on. And, 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 and there's a couple ways you can tell. If this is, if, if, if you're, uh, you know, ladies, if you're taking this down as a note, and you're wanting to quantify this. There are three things that tell us that he had something going on. Number one, he had a proven track record of success. He was the owner of the field. Enough said. If, if a guy deserves your attention, he ought to be able to prove to you that he has had a track record of success in his life. Not that he's the CEO of a company, not that he has some huge high position, not that he's famous and, and rich, but that whatever he's given, he's successful with. Right? Second thing is he brought his A game to every assignment. 
in a couple of weeks we're going to get to this, but when there's a harvest of his fields, most rich people like him didn't show up to the harvest. They just waited for everything to roll in, wait for the harvesters to bring in the grain, but Boaz didn't like that. Boaz, is, probably since the first day he bought his small, a small parcel of land to start out his career, probably since the first day of his career, he had been harvesting and he's not about to stop. Sure, he doesn't have to go, but he's the kind of guy who brings his A game no matter what. And here's what I want to tell you, ladies. If you're dating some guy and he's telling you that the reason that he's not successful is that his skills are not adequately appreciated and that he's just not able to work in the kind of environment that he needs to be working in and he's just not being challenged and his boss is not giving him the right kind of work to do, let me tell you, that is the sign of a loser. You need to drop him like a bad habit because you give that guy a CEO job and he's going to be the same way. I told you, it's not about being the CEO. It's not about having a, a huge position. You know, the first years of our marriage, I worked entry-level apartment maintenance, pulling and replacing toilets. I spent three or four days pulling toilets out of apart, uh, apartment rooms and putting in new ones. Let me tell you what, that will, that will get you close to God. That'll humble you. I worked the Tire Lube Express at the Laramie, Wyoming Walmart, and let me tell you what, if you're willing to change oil on trucks in ice from farms in Wyoming with animals all up in the engine area, that will also get you close to God. That'll humble you a little bit. It's not a matter of the job. Listen, if you're dating a guy and he's working fast food and flipping burgers, if he is the best burger flipper that they've got and he is he is just working it like all and he's thinking about what he can do with the experience that he's getting and he's pushing and he's working and he's being successful then that's the kind of guy you want because someday he's going to own that place right but you give somebody a beautiful opportunity with a great title who thinks that if they're not successful someone else's fault and pretty soon they're going to be way down here. So they need, to have, they need to have something going on. In Matthew 25, 29, the Bible says, those who use well what they are given, even more will be given and they will have an abundance. So what this is about is the process of being successful, the process of being your A-game so that God will continue to invest more in you. Here's the, here's the third reason that you know Boaz had something going on, and that was he was devoted to God. Ruth 2.4 says that while she was there, while Ruth was still there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. And he said, how much do we take in today? How much money do you think we made today? Anybody, how's, how's, uh, how's everybody's morale? Anybody mad? Any fires I need to put out? You know, it's one of the things about being a boss. Any fires? No, first thing out of Boaz's mouth, the Lord be with you. Because here's the thing. A really successful guy knows that the only way he's ever going to really have success is if God is all weaved up into it. If God is part of the DNA of what he does, he knows it's going to be successful. So I'm just saying, if, 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 you're, if you're with a guy and he's just nominally Christian and he shows up in church just to say that it's something that he does, but God is not weaved into the fabric of who he is, that does, that's not a good sign that he has something going on. Second question, man. I'm always running out of time. Second question. Does he show you favor? Does he show you favor? So if he has something going on and God is showing him favor, my question is, does he understand that God does not pour favor onto anybody so that they can be a swimming pool and absorb it all up and hold it all in? God 
those of us who are husbands in this room, we really need to pay attention to this. God, if God is giving you favor, it's so that you can be a pipeline, so that you can be a conduit, that God's favor can come in and flow through and reach to your kids and reach to your wife. Listen, if, 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 you, if you've got somebody in your life and they've got something going on, but they don't know how to show favor, what you have on your hand is a workaholic. But what we're talking about is somebody who has something going on because they know that in doing that, God is going to continue to show them favor. And, and because God is showing them favor, they can then be a conduit that pushes that favor out to the people that they love. See, Boaz knew how to show favor. Look at this in, in Ruth chapter two. Boaz asked his foreman, who is that young woman over there and who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, she's that young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi and she asked this morning if she could gather grain and uh, she's been hard at work ever since except for a few minutes rest. And Boaz went over to Ruth and said, stay right here with us. When you gather grain, don't go to any other fields. Boaz did not have a commitment problem. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part uh, where they're working and then follow them. I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you're thirsty, help yourself to the water they've drawn from the well. And then at mealtime, Boaz called to her and said, come over here and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. So she sat with his harvesters and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. And she ate all she wanted and still had some left over. And then Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain among the sheaves without stopping her and pull out some heads of barley uh, from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her and don't give them a hard time. This is what favor is about, guys. All antenna up. Favor is about taking the blessing that God gives you and intentionally leaving handfuls of it for her on purpose, not with a bunch of pomp and circumstance and announcing to the world, look at me, I'm being romantic, but a person who says, God is blessing me. And the reason God is blessing me is so that I can keep handing it out handful after handful to the people that I love and they'll keep discovering it. And they won't think, it won't be about, look at how great I am as a husband or look at how great I am as a father. It'll be, look at how great God is because God has blessed us and we are a part of, we're part of receiving that blessing as a family. We're part of receiving it together. So if a guy shouldn't, if a guy's gonna make the cut, he's got to be able to understand that if God's showing him favor so that he can show others favor. So if you're a guy in this room and you're in the dating scene, let me encourage you to forget the come on lines, forget the stale candy and the pathetic flowers and, and forget the, how you doing? Right? I think I just dated myself. I am a child of the nineties, but, um, <laughs> practice showing favor, practice showing favor. Now, how do you know if a guy knows how to show you favor? A guy who knows how to show favor will show you favor before you're in a relationship with him. Because if he waits to show you favor until you're in a relationship with him, then, then it's a transaction. Well, I'm getting something from you, and so I'm, I'm trying to bless you in return. But a guy who really knows how to show favor will show favor to you before there's any relationship. Boaz, at this point, does not have any reason to believe that Ruth is at all interested in him, but he still knows how to show favor. When he sees somebody that he's impressed with, and when he somebody, sees somebody like Ruth, he wants to just bless that person regardless. And so if a guy knows how to show favor, he'll show you favor before you're in a relationship. In terms of husbands showing favor, I just want to say something, and I hope, I hope you guys will cut me some slack, because I know I'm being kind of tough this morning, but you should know I've got, I've got one finger pointed out and four fingers pointed back. But seriously, when I, when I, was, when I was first married, uh, or right before we got married, I desperately wanted a job uh, that was enough that would be able to pay for us to live, you know, as a, as a married couple. And, uh, and I'm, you know, I was living at home. I wanted to move away from home and, and marry Wendy and be self-sufficient. And so I, I was interviewing for all kinds of jobs and, and jobs that really I should not, I was not qualified for. Um, and, and because my dad coached me up 
from being a kid about how to, how to talk to people, how to interact with people, how to, uh, how to present yourself. I always interviewed well. I don't think I've ever interviewed for a job that I didn't get. The problem is if you interview really well, sometimes you might get into a job that you probably shouldn't be in. That's what happened to me. In the first year of our marriage, I was an office manager. Now, nobody with severe ADHD should be an office manager. You know, you're sitting there, you're processing, processing orders, squirrel, you know. That's what happened to me, and uh, you know, so it was right about the time that I forgot to ship a $43,000 shipment to one of our distributors that my boss called me in and explained to me that I had just lost the company more profit than my yearly salary, um, and, and he, he said, you know, we're going to have to part ways here, and he said, if only your work was as good as your interview. Guys, our work as husbands needs to be as good as our interview when we were dating, you know, I mean, we, we present well, we know all the things to do when we're dating, but at some point we got to live it after the wedding rings are exchanged, right? I'd love to camp out there for a minute, but I'm already in overtime. I want to give you the last point. Number three, third question, is he attracted to character? Is he attracted to character? Look at this. Ruth 2, verse 10. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? Now, that question, that, what, what that question is, is why me? And married guys in this room, you should know that your wife still needs regular reassurance why you picked her instead of somebody else. Because if she doesn't carry that in her heart, there's, there's always going to be a feeling that, of insecurity in the relationship. But Ruth here at the very front side of things is saying, why are you showing kindness to me? And look at what he says. I, I know that you're a foreigner, because she said, I'm a foreigner. I said, I know. But I also know about everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. And I heard how you left your father and mother in your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you've done. Let me ask you, what are you attracted to? Guys in this room, what are you attracted to? If you're attracted to physical beauty, if that's what it's calibrated to, if you've set the dials inside to be attracted to physical beauty, let me tell you, let me warn you, that's going to be a life of discontentment, and you're putting her in a competition that someday she will eventually lose. So, you know, all the time, hey, baby, you're so beautiful, you're so wonderful, you look so good. Yeah? You know what she's thinking? She's thinking, is that it? Is that why you're with me? Because someday I won't be this beautiful. What then? Right? But some of us, we, we, we calibrate it to compatibility. Baby, we fit together so good. We got the right personalities. We get, the, we get along so good and everything is fine. I mean, I know that we, we are just compatible. The internet sets up, you know, took the test and everything. <laughs> Let me tell you something. That is a losing bet because you're betting on the fact that you are still going to be the same person that you are now five years down the road and you're betting that they're going to still be the same person that they are five years down the road and it ain't going to happen, Right? Or this, this one is probably the, more, the one I hear more often is, it just feels so good to be with you, baby. I mean, we just, man, we, I just have this feeling when I'm with you, and I just, ah, oh, it's so wonderful, and I just know it's, a, it's the it factor, you know? We get together, and I just, hmm, I just feel so good. Okay, well, we've just re- reduced the relationship to hormones, <laughs> you know? But when you calibrate your attraction to character, what you're saying is, when she says, why me? You say to her, I'm with you because I'm attracted to your soul. I'm attracted to your character. I'm attracted to what makes you who you are. And by the way, that is the basis for a storybook romance. Those are the real romance stories. Boaz said two things. He said, I know your story and I know your character. Let me tell you something, ladies, if you're in this room and some guy has told you he wants to go out on a date, but he does not know your story, he doesn't know enough about you yet to pursue you. 
said, I know your story and your story is beautiful. She had always been a little odd. When she was living in, in Moab, she was the Moab girl who married that Israelite boy. When, when they moved to, to Judah, she was the Moabite girl that Naomi brought home. She was just always different. She always stood out like a sore thumb and it always felt like she was a little odd. And Boaz looked at her and said, it's not odd. It's beautiful and it's exceptional and it's what everybody else doesn't have and it's what I'm interested in and it's what I'm attracted to and it's what I'm going to show favor to. That is a real man. That's a real man. I'm five minutes into overtime, so I got to wrap this up. When I was two years old, I guess I was, I guess I was two, um, I was convinced that um, I should be able to tie my own shoes. You know, I felt like at two it was time. And so we'd be trying to go out the door and my dad would say, Jonathan, let me tie your shoes. No, dad, I do it myself. That, dad tells me over and over, he said, I, I heard it a million times. I do it myself. And I would find ways to create knots that no Boy Scout has ever <laughs> done on his own. Start out with hope. I'm going to tie it myself. I'm going to do it myself. I got hope until I would get hopeless because I would look at this gargantuan knot that I didn't know what to do with. And then you know what happened? A switch would flip inside and I'd have hope again because I'd go to my dad and I'd say, dad, can you do it? (laughs) See, some of you in this room, you used to have hope, but now you got a bunch of knots and you're feeling hopeless. And it's time to go to your heavenly father and say, dad, can you do this? Because if you do that, God is going to send you a destiny that will blow your mind and he will take you where you need to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for the fact that you know how to untie the knots. Now I pray you would send us out of here with the knowledge that you can take us where we need to be. Let us put our faith and our hope in you. And we want you to take us where we need to be, Father. We put it in your hands and we praise you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here.